This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Kevin Lindsay, host of Systems and Cybernetics here on the New Books Network. Here we are at the beginning of yet another new year, and this one is showing no signs of being less challenging on many fronts than the one that just ended. So in the spirit of getting 2024 off to a good start with conversation about how we can put systems thinking to work to address complex problems, I'm excited to share my chat with the authors of another great book. In this episode, I speak with Pete Barbrook Johnson and Alexandra Penn about their 2022 book, Systems Mapping, How to Build and Use Causal Models of Systems. Pete is a departmental research lecturer in the Economics of Environmental Change in the Environmental Change Institute and the Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment, both in the School of Geography and Environment at the University of Oxford. His core research interests sit at the crossroads of social science and economics, complexity science, and environmental and energy policy. Pete holds a PhD in sociology, computational social science, and complexity science from the University of Surrey. Alex is a senior research fellow and complexity scientist at the University of Surrey, working on combining participatory methodologies and mathematical models to create tools for stakeholders to understand and steer their complex human ecosystems. Alex was made a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts for her work in the novel application of whole systems design to bacterial communities. She holds a doctor in philosophy in evolutionary and adaptive systems from the University of Sussex. Now, on to my conversation with Pete and Alex about systems mapping. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay, and thanks for joining me here on Systems and Cybernetics on the New Books Network. Today, I'm really happy to be in conversation with Pete Barbrook Johnson and Alexandra S. Penn. We're going to call them Pete and Alex, I think, for the rest of the conversation. And uh, we're going to be talking about their book, Systems Mapping, How to Build and Use Causal Models of Systems. And I really like this topic and I really like this book. I think that, um, as you may know from some of the previous episodes, uh, I'm really interested these days in the application of systems thinking, all the different ways it could be used in organizations and to tackle challenges and, and, and problems by people. And uh, the tools that are provided in this book and the discussion that we're going to have here hopefully will be really helpful to listeners who are practitioners and are wanting to bring systems thinking into their work, uh, whatever that work might be. So let's just dive right into it. I want to welcome you both to the New Books Network. So how are you both doing today? Very well, thank you. Good, thanks for having us. And 
I was also uh, just mentioning before we started that this is a, a first for me in that I have never talked to co-authors who are actually in the same room together. And what would make it even better would be if I were there with you. Um, so maybe someday we can meet in person. Uh, but for today, I'm, I'm over here on one side of the screen, but I'm really glad that you two uh, can be together for this conversation. Um, let me just take a moment just to provide a little bit of an introduction. So Pete, um, you are a departmental research lecturer in the economics of environmental change in the Environmental Change Institute, ECI, and the Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment, both in the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford. Um, in just a moment, I'd like you to tell us more um, about what all that means and what you're interested in and, and what your current work is, is all about, but that's just a little bit to get us started. And Alex, what I have here is that you are a complexity scientist working on combining participatory methodologies and mathematical models to create tools for stakeholders to understand and steer their complex human ecosystems. That sounds extremely cool. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So we're going to start with you first, Alex. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about you and uh, what maybe drew you to systems in the first place? And uh, what's your current um, real interest in, in the work that you do? Okay, well, that's a, that's a big question. So what drew me to systems, I guess? So, I mean, I started off in physics. So my undergraduate degree was in, in physics, um, um, I, which I think, you know, it does sort of lend itself in certain sense to to, to systems perspective. Um, you, you, you're sort of encouraged to think broadly about all kinds of problems. But I was really engaged in environmental issues, sustainability issues from, from quite a young age. And I was always looking for sort of ways to, you know, to, to think through that. I think I, I think I probably had quite a natural systems approach. And I actually, after my physics degree, I found that there's a field of work in complexity science and artificial life trying to understand the principles of living systems through expressing them in different uh, media, in computers, uh, in chemical systems, and really very cybernetic approach, mm. essentially, to understanding life. Um, and that brought together sort of an interest for me in the kind of mathematics of living systems, which had come out of uh, my physics, and also roots into kind of looking at sustainability issues, I think, in, in, in a different way. And this is how I discovered complexity, artificial life, cybernetics. And I was at a great institute at the University of Sussex. It was very much based on cybernetics and an idea of philosophy with a screwdriver. Mm. My PhD supervisor used to talk about we understand things by um, interacting, by trying to building, by trying to build systems, you know. Um, and I think I learned an immense amount through that process, and essentially questioning the boundaries of what um, evolution was, what life was, all sort of great um, foundational approaches to looking at systems, I think, you know, taking broad and creative approaches and interactive approaches to dealing with, with problems. At that time as well, I was doing a lot of uh, systems design work in permaculture, sort of ecological mm. approaches, again, from systems ecology in constructing and interacting with human ecosystems. And so I was doing a lot of participatory work, a lot of community design work, um, and almost with this sort of systems work and move, move into policy, participatory design, complexity, and bringing all those things together with sort of applied systems work and trying to enable people really to kind of 
understand the systems around them as ecosystems, to be able to visualize things that way, to be able to interact with them, steer them, have relationships with them, and see systems on different scales. You know, that this was this kind of perspective which somehow brought all these things together, all these intellectual interests and things I love to do, but also with the opportunity for practical action and empowerment in domains like sustainability. Um, but yeah, coming from a kind of really exciting intellectual and practical praxis perspective. So, you know, I, I sort of came to it, I think, yeah, through this kind of slightly strange path, but somehow it feels like a real um, culmination of those, those different interests is brought together here in this kind of work, you know, participatory systems and complexity work. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, super interesting. And I hope we get to dive a bit more into um, some of uh, your lineage in, in the course of the conversation. Uh, Peter, how about you? Yeah, mine's much more kind of linear, I think, in some respects. I, I definitely not haven't jumped around between different fields as much. So I started off doing economics at undergrads, and really that was because I didn't know what else to do, and it seemed like something that was vaguely useful, or you might be able to get a job after your degree. Uh, and then I was interested in the environment <clears throat> and wanting to, you know, people were talking more about climate and biodiversity. This is in the kind of early 2000s. And so I thought, okay, I want to do economics. I want to do environment. So I ended up doing a master's in environmental economics. But there is when I really kind of hit a brick wall and I felt like the traditional economics that I was getting taught about doing cost benefit analysis, asking people how much they would be willing to pay for different ecosystem services, thinking about supply and demand curves all the time. I really got quite fed up with that, that way of thinking. And just by chance, a friend of mine on the course gave me a book by Eric Weinhocker, The Origin of Wealth. And in that, he talks a lot about complexity economics and really has a chapter where he talks about agent-based modeling. And that really lit up for me and became a, a real interest. So I I really was agent-based modeling was the entry point. I ended up doing my master's dissertation, building a really bad agent-based model that had all sorts of problems with it. But that allowed me to then go on and apply for PhD, where I built a slightly better model uh, about pharma behavior and really kind of solidified my interest in agent-based modeling. What I think happened then is I kind of realized that there was more around that and there was this wider, you know, I was coming from a social science background and economics background, so I wasn't aware of complexity science as a broader set of ideas. I wasn't really aware of systems thinking, but through agent-based modeling, I discovered those. And I, what I've tried to do more recently is kind of have both ends of the spectrum there. So have the quantitative models with the agent-based modeling more kind of underpinned by complexity science, but then also have the more qualitative work using systems mapping more underpinned with a kind of systems thinking mindset, which I found I've kind of fallen into that through Alex, really. It was Alex that introduced me to systems mapping. Um, and, and we found that that kind of work is more usable or more easy to use in a very applied context with policymakers, with businesses. And so I feel like hopefully there, there's a nice compliment though, that you can do the quantitative work when we have it, when there's space for it and when we have the data, but we can do the qual work that's still underpinned by systems thinking. Um, and so, yeah, that's the kind of trajectory I've taken from economics through agent-based modeling through to systems mapping. Right. Well, Pete, that does not sound very, very linear, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it all feels like it makes sense in hindsight. It, 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 time, it makes sense. I think you could probably draw a line, but even as you're as you're gesturing and listeners can't can't see the the video, but you're kind of meandering a little bit with your with your hand. So it, it was it was a little less than than linear, I think. Um, and you did a dangerous thing by trying to combine economics and your environmental interests. So there you go. You were destined for systems um, thinking at, at that moment. Um, so I wanted to start the um, start the book. Uh, or I'm not. I, I'm gonna. Well, this I've never done this before. I've never actually started reading the book during the interview. Um, no, I've actually read the book. And uh, what I want to start the conversation with is uh, just a little um, quote from uh, early in the book when you're introducing it. Uh, you say there is a growing need in a range of social, environmental, and policy changes for a richer, more nuanced, yet actionable and participatory understanding of the world. Complexity science and systems thinking offer us hope in meeting this need, um, but, and you kind of uh, go on to say maybe where the limitations have been in our, um, in, in, in systems thinking up till now, and hence the need for this book. Um, I'd love you to, to start by talking about that, that, that section early on in the book where you say, uh, why did we write this book and who is it for? Um, so who'd like to, to start that part of the conversation? Yeah, go, go for it. I think for me, uh, and we say this in the book, I think if I remember, the book is written for ourselves kind of five or ten years before. It's particularly on the systems mapping work, it's trying to bring together a set of methods and make clear where they're different to each other and where those differences are important and meaningful for what they can give you. And I think we were really motivated to write that because we had started to see that difference, but found when we talked to people about systems mapping, they thought it was just one thing and they had quite a simple kind of view of what, what it can do and what it's useful for. And they didn't, people didn't appreciate that variety kind of under the hood of that one very generic phrase, systems mapping. So I think that was definitely a big part of the motivation was to make that distinction between methods more clear. And then I think a second motivation which speaks to your first point about maybe there are some limitations with systems thinking. Maybe systems thinking has been around for a while, but it, it's not like it's used everywhere. It's not a common skill or way of thinking that's applied in lots of places. So why might that be? And I think a big part of that is how accessible or what Alex calls actionable uh, are the insights that, that systems thinking give us. And so I think we were very keen with the book to make these methods easy to use to really lower the bar the barriers to them being being used and, and not not letting you know the perfect be the enemy of the good or right. not 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 being too not being too kind of drawing what we're we trying to say not trying to draw barriers around what is or what is not systems mapping or what is or what is not systems thinking but making these tools kind of accessible and allowing people to do a bit quickly um, i think that was our uh, some of our motivation yeah, and I think another part of it is too that, you know, when you come to, you start doing systems mapping, there's a lot of academic papers out there, you know, about people's different projects, people's different methods, but none of those papers, their aim isn't really to help you to do the method, to help you do it in practice. And once you start doing mapping, I mean, when we're training people in mapping, you know, we always start with actually getting people getting their hands into the mapping exercise because there's so much that you learn from the practice 
of doing mapping. There's a huge kind of craft to doing mapping and it varies a lot between different methods. So we really wanted to kind of make very explicit, you know, the tricks of the trade, the kind of nuances, the learning, the, the tools that practitioners themselves you know, had picked up and developed over over time. Because this really is, these are practical methods. And, you know, it, it was that that we felt was sort of somewhat lacking in the literature, the actual kind of nuance and, and you know, tips essentially about how to do it. So we started very much from that practical standpoint. If you want to have a go, these are the things to be alert to. This is the, you know, the actual practical reality of doing it. So it's very much, you know, it's different from just trying to stake your claim in an academic yeah, yeah. I would even building on that. I think the <clears throat> the chapter that I feel like we've had the most positive feedback on uh, from people I really respect is there's a chapter towards the end about running workshops, and so mm-hmm. it's not about an, an individual method or how it works or the definitions. It's just us kind of offloading, saying here's all the random crap that's happened to us in workshops and how we've dealt with it. Here's where when we've burnt out, when we've felt fed up where things have gone wrong and so we've it's trying to be kind of warts and all practical advice on how to do things and so i thought i was quite pleased that where we were really offloading people found that useful and that's because i think that's kind of the what was what was missing there's a lot of like alex says there's a lot of work out there which pins down this is the definition here's an example but how do you actually do it was there wasn't as much advice there and so that was definitely something we were trying to do and hopefully is in the book yeah, I really appreciated that chapter. Um, I think that that's probably, well, and I think for, for, for context and, and for the benefit of the listeners, um, let me just offer this. Uh, the, the book, you, you, very early on, you say, look, there are um, a whole bunch of different methods uh, that can be employed for systems mapping. And you go through them. There are seven of them. We can we can dive into into, into some of these. And uh, then my my takeaway is: Hey, chances are you're you're bringing people together to 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 solve a particular problem. Um, really, that would be lovely if it were uh, in in person workshops. I'm guessing that you've had some experience over the past few years doing this online with 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 different groups because uh, the situation has called for it very often over the last uh, three years or so. Um, so maybe you're using Miro boards, maybe you're using other kinds of, of, of technologies to, to assist you. Um, but maybe just taking a step back and just diving a little bit more deeply into systems mapping and what it is, and just giving um, the listeners a, a picture of what you what you mean by systems mapping. It might, might seem obvious, but maybe just give a, a bit of an explanation of it. Who'd like to take that on? What, what is systems mapping? Okay, well, I think I sorry, something's just popping up here. Um, so, well, there's a huge number of methods that fall under the uh, the term sort of systems mapping. But what we're particularly looking at in this book is a is a sub sort of section of those which are 
methods which produce causal maps. So by that, we mean collections of entities, variables, factors, and some kind of description of the causal relationships between them. So we go right from the kind of qualitative end of the spectrum with rich pictures where you might be talking about narratives, metaphors, you know, just descriptive uh, views of your, of your system um, to quantitative methods such as systems dynamics. But all of these things we think have one thing in common is that we're trying to get a picture of the system by identifying component parts, bringing together different knowledge, different expertise about different parts of the system to say these things are important components in the system. They may be physical things, they may be uh, you know, things from policy, from economics, from, uh, from environmental fields, they can be anything. And then what we really want to think about is the causal interrelationships between those things and expressing those. And there may be different views, different mental models of what those causal relationships are. And that may be part of the process. But it's about it's about parts of the system and their causal interrelationships. And that's really what connects us to the complexity science, to the complex systems view of the world, because it's from those interconnected uh, sets of entities that complexity arises, the properties of complex systems arise. So it's very much that what we're talking about when there are many other methods in which we might, you know, go through defining a boundary of a system or um, different kinds of properties of what we call a system. But here we're, we're very practically talking about interactions between things in a system, causal interactions. Hmm. Hmm. That must be um, extremely interesting in, in that sustainability conversation, Alex, that you, you talked about, um, which is a, an area of interest for you as we, as we start to look at, um, climate change, for example, and all of the different, um, unintended consequences of, of particular solutions that might be on the table. That's something we hear about, um, quite a bit, uh, but taking the time and putting the effort into mapping, all of the different um, nodes and, and edges and, and really understanding that the network um, must be um, both really challenging for participants um, as, as well as very uh, eye-opening when, when they go through a systems mapping process, no? I think, so I, I think yes, but I think that's one of, one of the most powerful parts of the systems mapping process is when you brought a, a disparate group of, of people together. You, they all have some kind of stake in the system. They have some kind of knowledge or they, they're involved with or part of the system. And for them, the, the process can be difficult to get started, but uh, then you'll find almost as an unleashing of energy and people will, will start to kind of understand that they have this knowledge, that they understand how things interact and that we're interested in, certainly in our methods, what matters to people on the ground, you know, what they feel is relevant. And it's something immensely powerful, actually. I think almost every systems mapping method has this power in that it allows you to create separate from yourselves uh, a representation of a complex system of which you are a part, you know, for the most part, and see yourself within that system and suddenly understand in a very visual and direct way, ah, here are the, here's this unexpected indirect effect. Here's how what I do actually may impact on this, this other person or this other part of the system. So I think it can be actually very empowering to see that visual representation of yourself as part of a complex system. And that can be one of the most powerful 
parts of the process, actually. You know, it really makes you reframe where you are in relationship to the world and to, and to others. So, I mean, that's one of the, the kind of crucial outcomes often with, with methods with methods of these sorts. Some methods are more focused on that aspect than on producing, say, kind of a, a quantitative output. You know, so depends what you're trying to do, you know, which method you might use if you really want to build that. You know, if it's that kind of uh, aha moments that you're looking for, you might you might look to one method rather than another. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, sorry, I was going. To, I think, and I think when you say about sustainability, that's that's crucial, really. I mean, the real kind of motivation for doing this now, or why this is becoming popular again, is because we face these huge societal challenges, all of which really are complex systems problems, which require us to understand social systems, ecological systems, economic systems, technology in a kind of rapidly changing context. And it's those interactions, you know, and the the unexpected indirect effects, the dynamics that arise from them, that we crucially need to be able to kind of get a grip on to engage with managing those systems. So they're perfect tools really for for starting work in those in those domains, I think. Pete, in your story, and you, you talked about kind of um, coming, like discovering systems or maybe systems discovered you in, in your uh, journey. Um, and uh, I, I, to, I don't know to what extent the, the language and the, the theories and the, the thinkers and, and the various lineages were, were, were new to you. But just in terms of um, doing this work, how important is it that people understand the theory or the system's language um, and all of that in, in order to in, engage in systems mapping? It's a great question because I think this is a, there's a tension here and I've definitely sat, I've kind of been on either side of this at different times in my career. So I think to do some systems mapping and generate some value from a, a systems mapping exercise, uh, running a set of workshops, doing something, uh, an individual project. I don't. I don't think you need to know much of the lineage. I don't think you need to worry about particular definitions. I think you should design a process to fit your needs. You should feel free to design a bespoke process to be creative in how you combine different elements of methods. Um, and so, in that sense, you should not feel constrained by the theory and the lineage. That said, I think when we take a step back and sort of think about well, what's the role of these methods and how do we make them more useful and how do we advocate for them more and this wider way of thinking, then I think you do need to engage more and understand the lineage and what's gone before you. And particularly because these methods are not brand new and these ideas are not brand new. They systems thinking as, you know, you can tra tra trace that back millennia, I think, if you want to, but the particular sets of terminology and ideas have been around since at least the middle of the 20th century, complexity science, I think the same, maybe coming in slightly later, but definitely there's, a, there's decades of work there. And so I think if you want to understand why things have worked or not in the past or been popular or not in the past or used in policy or not in the past, then you need to understand what's come before. And so I think that's where, because me and Alex have taken that step back and tried to think more about the these sets of methods and the broader approach to complexity and the broader approach to making systems thinking more practical, then I think we have had to engage with those, those methods, those, that lineage 
Um, and so there, I think it's really important. But I would never want anyone to feel like they have to go back and read Danella Meadows or go back and read Jay Forrester or whoever it is before they can do some systems mapping. Yeah, but but as you say in the book, maybe maybe these systems uh, mapping approaches could be gateway tools uh, to you know understanding systems thinking more broadly. Definitely, definitely an entry point. Yeah. I see this come up all the time. I do a lot of work at the moment with economists, people more traditional economists, and systems mapping is definitely a kind of gateway drug for them to do complexity science and systems thinking in a more in a deeper way. Absolutely, it's because it's. Because it's quicker and more intuitive and you can just get stuff done faster than you can if you're walking in saying, I'm going to build you an agent-based model. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. On, on some of, uh, a couple of the episodes I, I've done, we've explored the intersection of design thinking and, and systems and um, looking at systemic design and, and the different models that come out of design, um, basically like at a, at a, you know, Stanford design school and, and others, um, around this. And I was actually struck uh, a little bit in, in, in reading this book that, that maybe this is a little bit, um, similar. Would, would you agree with that? Or uh, is, that, is that an area that, that you feel there are some overlaps or similarity with? Well, I mean, for me, between our method, the, the sort of one of the chapters in the book covers our own method, uh, participatory systems mapping, which is this, what we've sort of developed from the roots of FCM to to work in policy and to produce actionable insights. So that, for me, is very much informed by design thinking because of my background in permaculture design, mm-hmm. which is a systems design thinking approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a whole lot of... Um, when you're doing that kind of design thinking, you essentially start by building a, a model of the system, building a map of the system, a very detailed map um, from starting from an unthemed observation of everything that's there. And you're focusing very much on the interconnections between the components. And then you will think about how to work with that system, how to create connections to set up you know, a system that will will work in a certain way that will close resource loops and the idea of you being able to find these leverage points interact with the system um, effectively so all of that you know it comes it comes quite directly from from systems design and I think that to me was is really this idea of kind of doing aikido with a system um, essentially which comes very much from Bill Mollison and David Holmgren's approach to to permaculture, that's very much at the back of my my mind when I do um, participatory systems mapping, and the way I think it's expressed for us is obviously like like classic systems theory, finding leverage points, this kind of a this kind of approach, but also finding pulling out design archetypes for sort of thinking about how you could uh, what the structural what the implications of certain kinds of structure in the system are combined with characteristics of the factors so who controls what what's changing externally what matters to who combining that with network structures to try to understand where you need to buffer against a vulnerability or where you could find an intervention that has synergistic co-benefits for multiple different stakeholders but trying to kind of capture that 
the sort of insights you would generate in the design process, but, but through through the map so that you can be more creative in, in generating possible types of intervention or understanding how the system might behave. And I think there's a, yeah, there's a really sort of direct, direct route from that sort of systems design and are thinking about how can we help people intervene with their systems in a way that's, that's effective, that exploits and works with the structure of the system. That's, there's, there's a super direct lineage there. And I think also, yeah, as I said, just really that um, start with looking at the system. So we've done a lot of work in which uh, we, we work with, with policy colleagues and we will design our processes such that we're really making sure we're starting from the extant system. We're not starting from our policies and what we want to do to the system. We are getting down on paper what's already there. So what people want from a system and then everything that matters around that and those interactions. And then we think about the interventions. So it, it really kind of forces that observational process of what is the system before you start thinking about the intervention. Again, a very kind of systems design inspired approach. I mean, that's talking about our methods, uh, you know, and I realize the book is, is full of many other methods, too. Well, I'm glad uh, you started there. I, I'm, I'm glad you started there. Um, you know, as you as you mentioned, you, you, you cover several methods, seven, seven of them. Um, and you've chosen there are more out there, obviously. Um, you've chosen seven, including uh, your, your own. Um, maybe just talk about some of your choices um, some that maybe strike you as particularly useful or uh, helpful right now or in certain use cases, however you want to take the conversation, um, some of your favorites. Uh, I'd love to just hear a bit more detail on, on some of them. And we won't, we won't rattle them all off. We'll encourage people to uh, read the book and they can, they can read in more detail about them. But yeah, go for it. Yeah, the, the... Absolutely, there's, we have seven and there are more and we, we have a very long list of other things that didn't make it into the book we list in the introduction nice early on and we do try and go to the, <clears throat> to, take, to explain that, there, that, these, that we are making choices here and this is not all that is systems mapping, there's much more beyond and so I, that's always worth caveating um, but of course sometimes people miss that because the name's on the front of the book and so they think that's that's all that systems mapping is, or they think yeah. we think that. Um, the choice we had in those seven is really to give us a breadth between very qualitative methods uh, and very flexible methods like rich pictures, like causal loop diagrams, uh, which are more at that, that end of the spectrum, through to methods that are more quantitative and allow us to put numbers on things, which sometimes people find appealing sometimes it's very dangerous to put numbers on things if they're if we're pulling them out of thin air um so that's methods like bayesian belief networks or system dynamics and so we're we've kind of got the spectrum there from qual to quant and a couple of methods in between including our own also theory of change um, and fuzzy cognitive mapping and the i think for me they all they all have quite distinct differences in the way you construct a map and then what you do with it. And so we try and unpick all of those differences in the book. I won't go through them all now. I think for me, in terms of favorites, if I'm trying to build narrative with people, 
then I will I will normally think about doing a causal loop diagram to talk about feedbacks. And if you just the concept of feedbacks, reinforcing feedbacks, balancing feedbacks, runaway change, you know, in, the, in an environment and an energy policy context, those are very powerful and kind of salient ideas. And so that when we're just talking about narrative, that can be really important. And so we're just talking about, say, what's going on with the energy transition? Do we have cause for hope on climate? You see now a lot of people talking about tipping points and feedback loops around the deployment of renewables. And that's a way to generate excitement or energy or if just hope around where we might be on addressing climate change. So I think causal loops can be really useful there. At the other end of the spectrum, when we're in a very disciplined kind of policy type mode and we're trying to think through an intervention and what its outcomes might be, then I think theory of change is a a very, very popular and very, very powerful way of thinking about an intervention and its place in the system. And if we want to add numbers, I think my favorite then is kind of building on theory of change using something like Bayesian belief networks, where we add in conditional probabilities into this diagram of this causes, this causes, this. We start saying, well, if this is true, what's the chance that that is true? And we build Mm -hmm. in that, that slight quantification and that can allow you to do some numerical analysis and I really like that in Bayesian belief networks because those numbers, it's quite hard actually to get to get complete nonsense out of it. I think with fuzzy cognitive mapping, with system dynamics, it's easy to get crap out. It's, it's, it's harder to get the numbers right. But with Bayesian belief networks, I think the numbers are easier to get right. So that's on the quant end of the spectrum. That's more of my favorite. And I would, I'm really keen to do much more Bayesian belief networks in the, in the future. Hmm, really interesting. How about you, Alex? Any particular favorites, uh, especially given given your background? What are you drawn to? Well, I mean, I, I think, like, pretty obviously, it's going to be participatory systems mapping. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, maybe it's maybe it's worth saying a little bit about why we bothered to create another one amongst this long list. You... Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so participatory systems mapping is the method that we. Uh, we created and it's essentially started started from working in fuzzy cognitive mapping and finding that a fantastic tool for working with working with stakeholders in the region of heavy industry in the UK they found the process of putting together a map of their system really really useful but when we started to analyze it um, you know kind of classical fuzzy cognitive mapping way we turn it into a difference equation turn it into a simple dynamical model we very quickly found um, that the outputs from the, that dynamical model depended more on choices that the, the modeler made around the sort of sigmoid functions in, in, in the model, depended more on those the parameters and those sigmoids than on the structure of the map itself. So essentially, it was generating nonsense. But you can see, you know, when people are interpreting these, how, of course, they're kind of giving meaning to this sort of mathematical nonsense and the, the power the power of that maths is really real. So we wanted to do something that stepped back from all that, that didn't add anything in, that didn't obfuscate, and so was based on what the stakeholders gave us. So that's the structure of the map, and looking at that with network analysis and and causal flow, you know, what we can see coming into or out of the factor or factors, and information that they gave us and what mattered to them, who could control what, uh, what they felt was vulnerable, you know, any, any kind of different uh, sort of information. And it's from, from this kind of analysis that really kind of keeps it explicit that what you are essentially working with is a mental model. 
you know, that you've constructed together. It's not a mathematical object. It's a really elaborate thinking tool, a visual thinking tool, but that we can really kind of look through the implications of your thinking and analyze them in way, you know, bring out insights from using complexity science tools like network analysis or what have you that take you somewhere new, you know, and that build your understanding of complexity science itself, of concepts such as feedbacks, of leverage points, of trade-offs, you know, of interaction, and then that you can then go further with. It's all very open and explicit. It's visual. I think that's, you know, it, there's nothing hidden. There's no kind of black box component. And I think that was really the goal, you know, to be inclusive in what we could put in, really capture what mattered, and to do analysis that um, that takes you further, that builds your complexity literacy, but that's also accessible for participants. You know, when I come, when we do a process like this, we work with our stakeholders, and we want at the end them to have been designing new analysis themselves, you know, then to kind of work out what kind of, combinations analysis and tools could answer the questions that are relevant to them but that are also complexity questions so you know it's that kind of method where people can really take it on where they can redesign it reconfigure it to meet their needs and it builds their complexity literacy it builds their capacity and so this method really is this basis of or you know an exemplar of what i call an actionable complexity approach we're empowering people, we're producing usable insights, but simultaneously it's clear that it's not magic, it's not some sort of mathematical model that has some kind of status above and beyond what yeah. we put into it. Mm-hmm. So that's really that, yeah, I think... Can, can I just emphasise something that's in what is kind of implicit through a lot of what Alex has said there? I think what we're trying to do is uh, create the analysis methods to help us pull out useful insights from these big hairball diagrams, right? I think we have to recognize that a lot of people look at a systems map and they don't like it. Their immediate reaction is to scrunch their face up and go, oh God, look, this is a mess. There's no, Uh there's nothing useful I can take from this. And people, some people feel very comfortable with large messy diagrams, but lots of people do not. And so I think a lot of the analysis we've been trying to develop is to pull out that narrative in a participatory way pulling out the subsections of the map that answer more specific questions and give us more useful insight than just the big horrendogram, the spaghetti diagram on its own. And I think there's a real, I think one thing, there's a real risk with systems mapping and for the likes of me and Alex who really like it and, and believe in it is that we run off without thinking about, are we bringing people with us? And so I think, that's yeah. another motivation to this analysis is like making sense of these potentially overwhelming uh, diagrams. And so yeah, this is where I love this kind of phrase that Alex has come up with of moving from overwhelming complexity to actionable complexity. And so that's absolutely, I think all the methods can do that, but that's a particular emphasis yeah. in the, the approach we've been developing to try and help us make that, that cross from overwhelming to actionable. Yeah. Well, I, I'm struck by the word you use hairball to de- describe these these uh, these these diagrams or these outputs of a, of a process like like this. Um, we've all seen them. Just these crazy like how many lines and connections and and uh, it, it's just I can see how that would be very overwhelming and intimidating. But I think that you know one of the key words that you brought up early on in the conversation was uh, participatory. And, and I would add to that experiential. So anytime I've been in a, a process like this, it was that process of 
going through that, um, the, the output is very important and useful. And hopefully there's some really cool insights that you can take away from it. But, but just even that, that really rich process of, of, of seeing those connections come to life as you're, as you're creating the maps, I, I would think are, um, are really, really useful. Um, my, uh, my dog is indicating to me that, that it might be time to start wrapping up, uh, uh, our conversation, um, breakfast time, I, I think is, is, is soon. Um, but I really want to thank you both for joining me here for this conversation. Uh, very, very useful and interesting work and very interesting and useful book. Uh, so I, uh, I really want to congratulate on you on this, but before we wrap up, is there just a, a final thought you'd want to share a question? I didn't ask that you'd like to, uh, you've been mentioning, you've been getting feedback on the book, lots of conversations about it. Any, any, uh, new learnings or anything you'd like to share? I, I, the th I think the one thing I would do is encourage people to dive in like the, the only way or the best way to get started with these methods is to start building maps with people. Don't feel you have to read through every paper or every chapter in the book or whatever. Just start building a map with your colleagues or your friends about a topic that you have shared interest in. And I think very quickly you'll get a feel for what it might be able to do for you and how, how much you might be able to use it in your own work. So I would just always encourage people dive in mm. just get started like don't feel you have to become the expert before you can begin using this great advice yeah and i think on that line really have fun with it you know and enjoy this process and this is this is something that's a great sort of means to bring people together to have new interesting conversations it creates almost like a sort of creative and safe zone in which people can express different ideas in which they can reflect on what's happening in their systems so you know, i would say when you're when you're running these kinds of processes yeah don't be afraid to to go with that to explore to allow people to think and to kind of respond creatively to what's coming up and what's happening you know, you can do that while still producing rigorous and usable output, but it can be mm -hmm. a really great tool for people to start to learn, to gain perspective, to do this sort of higher order learning and questioning about their own values, assumptions, the system, their organizational constraints. So leverage that, leverage that you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, enjoy this process of helping people understand that they're in complex systems and that kind of amazing, you know, amazing moments i think where, where people people realize that so so enjoy it yeah i love that thank you well thank you both again this is a great conversation um i uh, i wish you a uh happy halloween since uh we're recording this on the 31st of october 2023 and um to uh the listeners thank you for for joining and uh i do encourage you to Pick up the book. It is an open access book. I'll include details in the in the show notes. You've been listening to Pete Barbrook Johnson and Alex Penn talk with me about their book, their 2022 book, Systems Mapping, How to Build and Use Causal Models of Systems. Thank you for uh, joining. And until next time, so long.